How tightly can a fist be held before the fingernails cut through the hand's heart line? I was taught to let go, to instead watch the four crescents gouged into my palms and let them just fade. And I carry on doing what I do, which is some form of living, until the next time my knuckles turn white at your closed doors. And it's not that I care anymore. I just care that they've been built in my way. Everything is permanent, you know. But it's okay if what's been built on top is better than what was there before. Those things in the basements of hotels and underground archives of which you've misplaced the keys, misnamed the trauma, and have a violent misunderstanding of its injustice. The labour and art of people, misemployed are the foundations of an institution that presents itself as something else, as if that's even possible without change. I heard you had a few million. Can I see it? It's not like I can just run away with it. You've turned people like me into borderland. I have nowhere else to go. And even if I did run away with it, I'd still complain that it isn't as much as I'm owed. Let me just hold it. I want to know what it feels like to have in my hands enough to resource myself and thousands of others and just hold it tighter and tighter still. As if something about this isn't deeply wrong, that I am allowed to do this until my knuckles turn white is felonious against nature. Something of the past that I would quicker cut into the heart line than let go of, as if ending the gesture that punctures the skin in the same shape every single time isn't worth it, simply because everything is permanent. You know, what's supposed to be repaired is irreparable. So when we talk about debt, to talk about the unpayability of debt is not to fail to acknowledge the debt. But certain mugs just refuse to even acknowledge the debt. People just want an acknowledgement of debt because it constitutes something like a form of recognition. But the form of recognition that they want is within an already existing system. What's supposed to be repaired is irreparable. It can't be repaired. The only thing we can do is tear this shit down completely and build something new. You are propagating the same shoot of sugarcane that paid for your slate walls and pathways just because you like the taste. But in these stones, horizons sing, fire, fire, gentrifier, fire, fire, gentrifier. Black people used to live here. Black people used to live here. And you earn your living within its soundproof walls as if afraid of being siren to ruin, as if that would be a bad thing, as if something about this isn't deeply wrong. I was taught to watch the four crescents through my heart line until I see four other places that look nothing like this. Four possibilities land in my palm within the indentations of injustice. And if everything is permanent, then why do even these marks fade? I build utopia from waning blueprints in my hand, but you insist on being in the way. And welcome to episode two of season two of the Critically Speaking podcast. In case you don't know, my name is Jafar Iqbal, and I'll be guiding you through this important discussion about white privilege and systemic racism in the Welsh art scene. Now, the artist at the start of the episode was the incredibly talented Sadia Pineda Hamid, performing her piece, White Knuckles. A multidisciplinary artist based in Cardiff, Sadia works in film, installation, text, and performance 
to explore collective and inherited trauma. She's also the co-founder of Lumen, a small press curatorial collective and a radio program for experimental, radical and personal art. Check out Lumen and check out Saadi's work. You won't be disappointed. Today's discussion is with Graham Farrow, who has been Artistic Director of Wales Millennium Centre since 2014. Graham had a distinguished career in Northern Ireland before moving to Wales, notably as Director of the Belfast International Arts Festival. Our conversation started with Graham talking about some of the differences between the two countries. So here we go. This is episode two of the Critically Speaking Podcast, season two. It was interesting that about a month or so ago, the Minister for Communities in Northern Ireland put out a statement about funding of the arts. And she said, we need to look after the arts and artists right now, partly as a thank you to how they looked after us. And I kind of thought, I can't imagine a minister in Wales saying that because during the conflict... The arts was a real source of hope and there was a potential for culture to bring people together and it was a place where people could come together. So it acted in that society in that way. And here it wasn't contested in that way. Did you know that coming in though? You must have known that, surely. I did, but it wasn't contested in an open way. In Wales, I think some of the contests around culture in Wales have only come up in the last year or so. And now we've got a chance to kind of go, right, okay, let's have this conversation. And culture is always and can be a source of conflict. And people will sometimes use it. And people in power in particular will use it as a source of conflict to reaffirm their position. Where has been the forum within media to have that discussion within Wales? And I I think there have been precious few opportunities, which is why a podcast such as this is welcome, to actually talk about culture, who owns what, where privilege lies, where power lies, and so on. You've been here coming on seven years. You are a senior member of a big organisation. Why couldn't you have done that? Why couldn't you have started those conversations? Well, I think I have to say that I feel that I should have. I think it's quite sometimes can be uncomfortable not being from Wales and being able to instigate those discussions. But I think that we all have to play a part, and particularly people in my position, which is a position of privilege and indeed white privilege. You're either going to engage with change and racial justice or you're not and either you can be defensive and not be part of a process for positive change or not for me i just regard diversity as a fact so it's not an action it's a fact and it's actually something to be celebrated so diversity is joyous i think there's a danger that we can view diversity as something to be worried about on the side rather than actually it being part of the way we live and the way we do our work on a daily basis. So I think that while I think Wales Millennium Centre has done 
work to effect change in what it does. We haven't been part of a conversation nationally on a platform about some of the issues that are present within our work and affect inclusion. The idea of people treating diversity as something to think about on the side, which I think is a criticism that's been leveled at you guys. Do you understand that point of view? I understand it. And it's something that we've talked about and we've talked with people internally and externally. Now, there's a big question about whether something is performative or whether it's meaningful and relevant, inclusive. That's been very evident in the last six months. I think what my position is that it's something to be joyfully celebrated, but that we do take very seriously. The way you can live it is to sort of think of this place like a house and ask yourself what that house looks like every day and who's in the house and who gets left out and how you want the house to be. And then if you say, would we want that house only to be inhabited by white men? I think any reasonable person would say absolutely not. But then you have to analyze, well, is it primarily white men, which it isn't here, but the diversity of our workforce is just under 5% from a ethnically diverse point of view, which is something which is not reflective of the diversity of the community that we operate in, right? So clearly the house is not as inclusive as it should be from a workforce perspective, which is not the only thing to think about, but it is very important in terms of people feeling like they belong here and that they can call this their home. That's one thing. But then there's another aspect about the work we make and with who and for who. And that's another area we we look at very strongly and have done, I would say, since I've been in here, but especially within the last few years. We've got to pay attention through an intersectional lens now more than ever. And that's not to say that the moment is now and that things have changed all of a sudden because they haven't. It's always been there. But this is a systemic issue. Earlier in the morning, I I read, again, your diversity statement from October. From what I can recall, you guys are the only ones who have kind of released something like that so far. But the question is, hey, it's great that you suddenly wanted to make this sort of almost seismic changes in these last seven months, but you've had seven years. Yeah, yeah. So where where was the seismic change seven years ago? If you think about, yeah, and I think that's a great question to ask. And some of that, I would say... We should have done that sooner. But there are some things in our diversity action plan that we were already doing, right? And there are some things that we have thought hard about as how can we do better? If you look at this building, and I'm looking around now at it, it was built around the turn of the millennium. It's quite a totemic thing, isn't it? It's quite imposing. It was really built initially to house musicals and opera, right? And up until say, seven years ago, that was pretty much how it functioned. So the journey of Wales Millennium Centre to be something which put things on made by other people to something that creates things and does that with people is a long journey. And this is a place that is only 15 years old. And in terms of a venue like a National Arts Centre, that's a very short amount of time. In that 15 years... A lot has changed culturally within societies, within Wales, within the UK and globally as well. So there are two things. While we haven't published a diversity plan before, 
it's not that we weren't doing things, but we weren't doing enough. And we published our statistics and accepted that and then said, you know, but we're going to put it in the public domain so that we can be held accountable for our actions. So I think it's better that we publish a plan than not and make it available to the public so that it can be discussed like we are now. So the question, I suppose, is, is that a performative action or do we really mean it? And I'm here to tell you that we mean it. And time will tell. And I'd say judge us on that plan in six months and then a year and then three years and then five years. I do believe in slow work, right? So I think there are things that need to happen quickly and there are things that need to happen slowly. And change will happen if you do the work and you live the work daily. And sometimes that happens quietly and doesn't get talked about or indeed shouted about or performed. So I think there's a lot of work for Wales Millennium Centre to do to be more diverse and more inclusive. And they're two different things. It kind of leads on nicely to the creative piece by Sadia Hamid, and she pretty much references Wales Millennium Centre quite overtly. Yeah. And again, that goes back to the idea of who belongs and who is this home to. What she says in that piece is not an isolated opinion yeah. at all. It's a beautiful piece, Ooh. but clearly Sadia doesn't feel that she belongs here or feels that she hasn't felt that she's belonged here. And I accept that. And I think either I could read that and go, that hurts, and I think it does. I would hope that it hurts. Yeah, but also... I think it's our responsibility to say, well, that is truth. And either you take that on board as a positive piece promoting racial justice, or you just leave it as a criticism that you don't, you know. So, you know, it's incumbent on us to do the work that we've set out in our plan to ensure that voices are included. And that is one of our... Um, Internally, we talk about giving voice and projecting voice. So we do have programs, for example, that we are working with young people to try and co-design a space which would be run by young people for young people on site. So including voices of young people, voices from within our local community in particular, within our work is important. And also it takes time and trust. And I've heard Rabab say this often, and I think it's true, that you can only really proceed at the pace of trust. So Saudi may not trust us yet. And that is a piece of work that we have to build trust and make sure that people feel that they belong here. And that would include where people feeling that they can use their voice here alongside other voices and that it would be relevant and meaningful and valued and that it feels like home. But feeling like home and having a voice are linked. In your opinion, how was that trust lost? Well, I don't think we'd built enough trust historically anyway. So I don't think we lost it at any stage. I just think that we hadn't built it enough. This place was built in the bay. I mean, this is referenced within Saudi's poem. Mm. This particular plot of land was unlived on land, but the whole development that it was part of displaced people who lived within community in Butetown. 
So we started off where we lost some trust from day one, right? So then over 15 years, we probably haven't done enough to build trust, but I would question whether the trust was ever there rather than whether we lost it. Why are all the arts leaders white? (laughs) Well, I think arts leaders who are white and indeed male like myself have to ask themselves, would I be in the position I'm in if I wasn't white or male, for example? And I think in my case, I would say the answer is no, because I've enjoyed a degree of privilege that has allowed me to have the job I have. So that's the first point of recognition. And if you recognize that, you'd say, well, would you want other pathways to be cut off to people if that's the case, that prevent other people who don't look like me or sound like me, although I'm, I'm from Sunderland in northeast England, so actually there are not enough people who work in the arts who, in my position who sound like me, but that's another issue. How can you give away your power to ensure that other people and and the way that we're dealing with that is by building those opportunities with young people that give young people who are not privileged the opportunity to develop skills at, at an early age from 13 upwards so that those pathways aren't closed off. Now, we're not then trying to equip people with skills so that they can be theatre directors or whatever. We call it a skills for life and skills for work project. So it's about then belonging. And then if you feel that you belong, do you want to work in the arts? Well, if you do, then there's ways that we can help that. People can change, right? People can educate themselves and we've got to make the change happen. Quite frankly, I could resign and give up my privilege and allow it to happen that way. But I do feel that the more important thing is to be part of the change and to be able to give away some power and to facilitate processes which will allow for slow change to happen over time. I think we've done some of that over the past few years, but now we recognise that we haven't done enough. And that's partly why we published a plan about it. It's to be acted on with people, in consultation with people, and by including people, not to just say, right, we've got a certain statistic, which is, you know, a 5% diverse workforce. We need to get that up to 19 or 20 in three years. Let's just do that. I mean, that can't happen unless you deal with the cultural issues that underpin that and work on belonging and inclusion. It's systemic because... The arts is a systemically racist business. It's a serious issue. But if we thought about the house and we thought about the joy of diversity, we'd be off to a better start, I think. It won't be solved by statistics. How would you define whiteness? (laughs) What what are you, Graham? I'm white. (laughs) I'm absolutely, definitely white. Um, The idea of whiteness. Well, I think that... It denotes a certain amount of privilege within Western society. Opportunity, which is part of privilege. I think we have to make the point that it is not a majority state globally, which is why we have not used and we don't use the acronym BAME, 
we discussed that internally and we discussed that with Inclusive Arts at the Inclusive Arts Conference with community members we work with and internally. And we felt that we should use the term Black, Asian and ethnically diverse because the word minority is problematic. So when I say I'm white, I'm also not part of a majority, although I am part of a majority that holds power in the West in particular. Generations of attitudes have to change over time and that changes through education and respect. mentioned you've been having internal conversations have they been as transparent and open as we're hoping to be here or was there a lack of trust and no they've been transparent and open mm. as far as a white leader working in an arts organization in butte town goes regardless of whether i'm white or not it's a privilege to be working in a community which is as diverse and rich in its culture as butte town so I feel like the story and the narrative of Butetown has not been given its due in Wales. And I think, why is that? And I think we know part of the answer to that is racism. But we're talking about what is arguably the first real multicultural part of a city in on these islands, alongside, say, East End of London, that has an incredible story that should be celebrated, and it hasn't been celebrated enough. And I ask you then, mm. Tiger the Musical, which I didn't see from a lot of people in Cardiff of the community, was that it failed on the level that it promised inclusivity and didn't deliver. Yeah, I agree. So, so what happened? Well... <laughs> We came to it from a good place in that we felt that the story was a story that was important to tell. Now, the story had been written by a white guy, right? So it came to a sort of pre-drafted. And actually, the problem starts there. If I was to wind the clock back, I would have said at that point, we can't tell a story about this community. A white man shouldn't be telling that story. It's not his story to tell, right? Why didn't you say that? Um, <laughs> I know. And I've asked that question a lot of myself. I thought it was a good story. Initially, the story was called King Cole, right? And the frame of the story was much more about the Marcus of Butte. And his story was kind of front and centre, and I think that remained. We kind of then said, look, the story that's important and the story that's wonderful about Tiger Bay is actually the story about multiculturalism and the birth of multiculturalism in the UK. Can you write it more like that? As much as you then try and build that into something, and it felt like something that we committed to, that we should try and make work. I think it was a good show. 
The writer spent a lot of time researching and talking to the Bay community about the story, but he couldn't tell the story as lived. Then it's kind of also, was that the right story to be telling in that format and what should have been the frame? So it's something that we've learned from. We're working on a story at the minute with Hamed Amiri, which is based on his book, The Boy With Two Hearts. I mean, Ahmed Chalmers directing it, but also the stories Hamid's, Hamid wrote a book about it. It was always his story. He wrote it. He's part of the writing team and the process. And there are other things that we have in development which are similar. There will never be anything that we do as an all-white team. We're trying to make sure that the actors in the piece are Afghan actors. I mean, that's the plan. Whether we can fully do that with Afghan actors that are available and can do it within the UK, we don't yet know, but that's the intention. That's what we're trying to do. So Tiger Bay was an experience that we've learned from and we got some things wrong. And I regret that we did. I think that we made a good show, but it wasn't the right process. And that's important in the some of what we describe within our plan is about process and how to do things right, not what the output is. Do you think you chose commerciality over... Authenticity. Authenticity. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think we then tried to make it authentic from a non-authentic starting point. And that was the issue. So the learning is never start from a non-authentic position when it comes to creating a piece of art, whether you think Tiger Bay is art or not. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, the commerciality thing is interesting because obviously the producing side of things is still quite new. Putting aside how good or bad it was, you can make a show like Tiger Bay the Musical, The Boy with Two Halves. The Boy with Two Halves will not be anything like Tiger Bay. No, no, I'm not... I mean, in terms of it'll not be a commercial show. But what I mean is you can then promote that to communities within Butte Town or communities that aren't your regular audience. How do you go to Butte Town and go... Come and see Kinky Boots because you're going to love it. I think that goes back to the belonging question. If you don't feel that Wales Millennium Centre is your home, you're not going to come and see Kinky Boots or anything else for that matter. We have a community ambassadors programme which Gemma works on, which is really about encouraging people to come here and use it and feel home. But the reason that we would do that is not so that somebody becomes a ticket buyer of the future for a commercial show, right? Isn't it? No. If that happens, then that's great. But the journey that we've been on is for this place to be much more than what happens behind those doors there, which are the doors into our main theatre. We also want to mix up what the product and the content that we show in the main theatre is and trying to free up space so that we can have events with our communities on the main stage. Now, there's a project which is about diversifying our whole program across a range of spaces that includes our main theatre. And I think we've made some headway there and we'll do more. The reason why we were so affected by COVID-19 is... We are heavily relying on commercial products. So our Arts Council grant is like 15% of our income. So 85% of it just fell out completely, which was 20 million quid. So then you kind of look at it and go, oh my God, this model wasn't as resilient as we thought it was. 
because if that falls over, the whole shebang looks quite fragile. How do we reduce our reliance on commercial products in the main theatre? I don't want to ever not do Patti Smith. We're never not going to do Les Mis. I mean, we were kind of built for that. It wasn't all that we did, but it dominated the landscape so much. And also, when you take it away, we look very fragile and quite exposed. So COVID-19 has been devastating for us. And that's why we got a few million from the Arts Council, because we needed it to survive. But it also gives us a huge opportunity to change. For example, while we've been shut in that sense, the only work we've been able to do has been with artists, communities and young people. So all of our work and everything that we have that we can talk about is young people making radio and podcasts on radio platform or the work that we do with Valley's Kids or the work that we do with Butetown Carnival. So those things that sometimes it's been quite hard to find within the overall narrative of Wales Millennium Centre become the narrative. And then you kind of go, but actually we believe in that. So how do we make sure that that has parity with Les Mis always? The question of money is a really interesting one. And again, it was prevalent in the piece from Sadia. When you are requesting money from the government for support and people turn around and say, you get three odd million a year, how do you justify that? You could get into the argument about whether we need buildings like this at all, right? I think it was Eleanor Roosevelt who says, you know, with leadership comes responsibility. So we're in a leadership position receiving a lot of money from the public purse in Wales. And then we have to make sure that that money is for the benefit of all. So, Bambi, you're really honest. Mm. It's quite a press releasey sort of answer. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I get <laughs> For that. the benefit of all. For the really benefit of all, I know, I even realised, <laughs> no, and I've said it, that that is actually something that the Arts Council has on the front of its document. Yeah. But yeah, it's a, we have a responsibility to show leadership, though. We've got to make sure that we are doing a lot of work around inclusion, for example. And this building is an asset which can be used for community use. So we kind of thought, how can we be a convener? How can this be a cultural asset that as many people as possible can share in? And we can be that partly because of the position that we hold, partly because we're well-funded, but also like, look at this place. We're sitting in acreage. Do we sweat every inch of this building for the benefit of all in press release language? And no, we don't. So that's the task. We get a lot of money because we need a lot of money. Whether we do enough for Wales with that money, I think we can do better and we know we can do better. Why do you deserve more than Jukebox Collective? So partly they don't have to run a building. This soaks up a lot of money. Just the hulk of this building and everything that goes around maintaining it, keeping it safe and so on, costs a lot of money. We have to provide a good working environment for people. We have to keep people safe. We have to make sure that it's clean. And all of that costs a lot of money. So that's just running the building costs about 1.8 million a year. Don't forget, we get 3.5 million quid a year from the Arts Council, but we earn through ticket sales, 
many, many times. It's 15% of our income. So if you look at other venues and organizations around Wales and the UK, there will be very few that have a model which works out where their arts council grant is only 15% of their income. If we value the arts, then you have to look upon it as an ecology and you have to invest in that ecology. Now, one of the things that has been evident is that one of the parts of the ecology that doesn't receive maybe enough investment and is also affected by the pandemic harder than others is the freelance sector and individuals who work within the arts. We employ hardly any artists, right? I just think, well, why is that? And it's partly because of the commerciality of our operation, but that is a change that we're going to make partly very soon because we want to employ artists. And yes, that should happen. It should have been happening before, but fair enough. If it's happening now, great. Part of the reason why it didn't happen before, and this is Wales Millennium Centre, but I think venues, is that you were in this paradigm where you were on this production treadmill of every week, the show's... There's money coming in. You can't withdraw from it. And you, you increase your administrative functions, right, accordingly to the more activity there is. Then you've got to change the paradigm. But that starts from the top. And I don't know who this person is, but someone in the organisation earns up to £170,000. An artist doesn't need £170,000. No. It's something that has to be said because it's, well, hey, yes, we need to employ more artists. You could have done that, but a lot of that money is instead being spent on one person. And that's when freelancers, freelancers of colour, artists of colour say, there's a white person in power making all this money. I don't need all of that money. Just give me a little bit of money and I can do it. Yeah. And that's a failure. Yeah. There is an injustice in that. What we also have to look at is the art sector vis-a-vis other industries, right? And you, by and large, people don't go into the arts to get rich. Where I think we have to look is, what's the gap between lowest paid, highest paid workers in organisations like this? So when artists get employed, what do they earn? How are they valued? And so on. And the fact is, we have a couple of artists employed, but we hardly have any. Who's in power? What's the makeup of the leadership team at the minute? That isn't what it should be. That would have to be addressed over time. But look, I get the argument and I think it's well made. But we also have to look at the arts in the context of it being a poorly paid sector of industry. Like Gemma and Jason and Emma in my team are really skilled people, right? And their skills are as producers or as community workers or as um, Jason is brilliant working with young people and he's inspiring. Their work also needs to be valued. And I think if they were working in another industry, what would they be getting paid for that level of and that skill set within Monzo, who you work for, for example? And they'd probably be getting paid more. Yeah. So we should be looking at parity there because the arts are structurally underfunded i'm guessing probably still working on this do you think 
you, you can, can get, get to a point, point where you are able to hire more artists and still, still run the organization in the same way. Is, is that what you're working towards or is it going to be a fundamental change in what WMC is going to be? I think it's a fundamental change that okay. we've been working towards. I bristle slightly at the word resilient because it's very buzzwordy. <laughs> um, fundamentally, we're talking about Wales Millennium Centre being an organisation which is more led by artists, communities and young people. And when I say led, that is partly about giving those people, for example, young people, a voice in our work. So we have a youth board in development, for example, and we do some models of co-constructed work with young people and we partner with other organisations to deliver that work. We don't do it all ourselves. When I talk about WMC being a convener, that's what I mean. We should try to create an environment that allows people to do their best work. It's a journey, as I said, that we've been on, but we're going to hit the ground harder. The shift will be much more apparent and this place will feel very different. We're never going to be the same after the pandemic anyway. But some of the, the work that we've been developing will develop more and that will mean that those communities that I talk about will have more of a, of a voice in our work and how we do things. That may not mean that we replace all of the leadership team and the board immediately with artists and young people, but we will include those voices in our work and their voices will inform how we do things. When you think about the structural racism or just structural prejudice in Wales, can you see a light at the end of the tunnel? Yes, because, you know, my point about referencing Ireland, I guess, is that the only thing that's certain is change. You know, I kind of believe in impermanence and you have to believe that people are capable of change and that there is hope. I believe that here, partly because the conversation is starting to be hard. I do think that there is a form of truth and reconciliation process that has to happen in Wales, actually, with regard to race. I think it's beginning. Wales should be able to celebrate this. Another thing that Rob said that I think is true, that Wales has a position to a degree as both coloniser and colonised. And that should give Wales some sort of empathetic possibility with regard to how it deals with narratives and identities and so on. I think there are conversations to be had about race. For example, you brought it up at the time, Javar, but when you look at what happened over a year ago with regard to National Theatre Wales, it's interesting to reflect on that now. If that happened now, I'd be interested to see how that would play out. As someone not from Wales, I found it difficult to comment on at the time, but it struck me as difficult when there was a letter signed by 40 people and 39 of them, I think, were white. And, you know, you can talk about it organisationally, but the person who was at the receiving end of that was a British Asian woman. That needs to be unpacked. Funny thing is, I was going to end the conversation with that last question and then really? you brought up this really big thing that I'd love to talk about, but obviously I don't know how much you want to talk about it. Um, 
I think it's a... People can make professional mistakes, right? And I think that doesn't mean that they shouldn't be given time to work through that and learn from it. Some of the questions that you've asked me, hopefully I've shown that I have learned from some experiences in Wales and hopefully we can do better as a result in Wales Millennium Centre. I just didn't feel like Colly was afforded the time and... Yeah, she left and she got another job and she's got a great job up in Leeds. Great job. Absolutely brilliant job up in Leeds and she'll be brilliant at it. They're going to miss her. Yeah. So I was disappointed. I spoke to her at the time, briefly about it. It's just interesting to reflect on it. Wales Arts Review then published an article about it and quite a long time afterwards and reflected on it and asked the sort of questions that I'm asking now about, actually, was that right? But Wales Arts Review also published the letter at the time. I wonder how people feel now, in hindsight, as signatories of that letter. I can understand why, and I'm not saying that the letter didn't come from the right place or that intentions weren't good because there is an issue about people telling stories about Wales who aren't from Wales and that you know when we talk about authenticity and non-authenticity that's part of that and language is a part of that as well however too many narratives within Wales have left out race and that's something that I think is starting to be addressed so it's interesting to reflect on it now I don't think we can allow something like that to happen again because I think that it might have made that person feel not welcome in Wales or that she didn't belong here. So when we're talking about belonging, though, it's, um, it's something we need to work on. Season two of the Critically Speaking podcast was the joint effort of many talented and hardworking people and they all deserve to be praised. So I'd like to thank Dr. Adiola Devis, Aki Gurung, Alice Eklund, Connor Allen, Dure Shehwar, Edith, Fez Mia, Jafrin Khan, Jasmine Grace Okay, Mali Ann Reese, Radha Patel, Sadia Pineda Hamid, Selena Kaimaur, and Shane Nichols. I'd like to thank my guests for giving us their time. And of course, I'd like to thank Arts Council Wells for funding the project. Now you can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram by searching for Critically Speaking. And please, if you like what you heard, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. But that's all for now. Until next time, thank you, diach and goodbye.